Alma counsels his sons on how to care for sacred things, tells them what it will mean to carry on when he is gone, and above all, teaches them of the transformative power of Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Alma 36 through 38, Look to God and Live. First, we have a couple of questions. These come from Michael in Salt Lake. First question is, you have referred to the Zoramites in the book of Alma as being descendants of Zoram and part of his tribe. However, when I read Alma 30 through 31, it seems much more evident to me that the Zoramites are a recent break-off apostate group from the Nephites who named themselves after their leader Zoram, similar to the Amalekites, Amalekites, the people of Ammonihah, or the Amulonites. This is made most clear in Alma 3059, when the Zoramites are introduced as a people who had separated themselves from the Nephites and called themselves Zoramites, being led by a man whose name was Zoram. To me, it doesn't seem evident that this group of people are part of the tribe of Zoram, and it is only coincidence that they have the same name as Laban's servant, Zoram. Do you agree with this assessment? Thank you for that question, Michael. And I think I would say it does seem that uh, they were named after the, their leader. The, the, way, the reason that they got their name Zoramites was because they were following a man Zoram. And I mentioned at the time when I taught uh, Alma 3031 that this was sort of my guess. And here's the reason why I think they were actually also part of the tribe of Zoram. First of all, why would their leader be named Zoram unless he were why would you name your son Zoram unless you were part of the tribe of Zoram? So the fact that they're led by a man named Zoram and they call themselves Zoramites to me says that at least a large part of them probably came from the tribe of Zoram. Now that's my assumption. Uh, I don't have proof in the Book of Mormon, but I have one thing. If you look at Alma chapter 54, verse 23, now we're going to get to this part, but there are a couple dissenters that later on go to the Lamanites, and one of them well, two of them, their brothers, they end up ruling the Lamanites, Amalekiah and his brother Amaron. And at one point, Amalekiah writes a letter to Moroni, and he says, I am Amaron, a descendant of Zoram, whom your fathers pressed and brought out of Jerusalem. So the one of the longstanding themes in the Book of Mormon is that the Lamanites feel like they've been victimized by the Nephites. The the Nephites took away what had rightfully belonged to their fathers, the rule over all the people. And the Zoram, now we have an indication in Alma chapter 54, we have an indication that the Zoramites had some sort of justification that was possibly longstanding that, that gave them a similar story, which is the Zoramites, their father, their forefather, Zoram, the original Zoram, was pressed and brought out of Jerusalem, was captured and kidnapped away from Jerusalem by Nephi. And this is, even though it's not the same thing, you took away the rule, uh, it's a similar story. You victimized, your forefathers victimized our forefathers, and therefore you owe us. And that is the story that Amaron tells his people. So when my guess is that when they defected or they dissented to the, to the Lamanites, these Zoramites said, we have a similar story. Both of our forefathers were victimized by Nephi, and therefore we can join together. And so that's the reason why I think, I didn't, I didn't explain this in the lesson at the time, but that is the reason why I do believe that these were not only led by a man in their own time, uh, 
named Zoram, but they also came from the tribe of Zoram. Thank you for that question, Michael. Michael goes on to ask, The name anti-Nephi-Lehi has always been a bit confusing amongst the Latter-day Saints I know since the Ammonites were pro-Nephi and Lehi rather than anti-Nephi and Lehi. Could you comment on the meaning of anti-Nephi-Lehi? And he gives a few suggestions. So this has been a long-standing question, and there is even a little bit of controversy about it. Uh, Obviously, most people don't think they actually take the Greek meaning of the word anti, which is against, which later found its way into Latin and and thence into English. Obviously, they weren't against Nephi and Lehi. Uh, One suggestion that Michael makes is that the land where they live is called the land of Nephi. It's the land of the Lamanites, and nevertheless, it's called the land of Nephi. And so it might be an expression that they were against the traditions in the land of Nephi. Uh, That's an interesting idea, one I haven't read elsewhere. The main idea I find on the internet is that there is an Egyptian root, N-T-Y, and that might have been, it means those of, so it might have been that they were using an Egyptian word to say those of Nephi and Lehi. Also in Hebrew, There is a word neged, which means anti in English. So Joseph Smith may have translated this word, but that word in Hebrew also means facing. So it could mean we are facing Nephi and Lehi. We are looking to them for an example. And the way that Joseph Smith translated this word, even though it meant facing, was anti. So those are two intriguing possibilities from ancient languages, but the truth is we just don't know. I would would accept either of those as valid, but it does seem clear that it doesn't mean the modern English meaning of anti, which is against Nephi and Lehi. Thank you for those two questions, Michael. Today's lesson is indeed a powerful one. And before I get into it, I want to say that you may have heard me talk on several occasions about a few things. Parallelism, which is, well, poetry first of all, and then parallelism, which is a form of Hebrew poetry. And then chiasmus or chiasm, which is a form of parallelism. Now, all three of these things are literary forms and literary topics that uh, I I consider certainly within the purview of this show, but uh, I cover them in a lot more detail, or I should say my guest covers them in a lot more detail in a special episode that we have coming out this week. This is a video episode, which we've only done once before, and his name is Mike Madsen. You may remember Mike if you have been following me since the time of the Old Testament. He taught on the Old Testament tabernacle and the Exodus and the traditions that arose out of the tabernacle and how it points to Christ. And that was in the fall of 2018. And I haven't been able to get him again on the show since that time, but he's a wonderful guest. He's a brilliant teacher of the scriptures. And uh, he gave us, he gave me personally a presentation that he's done many times about chiasm in the Book of Mormon and the way that this modernly revealed scripture reflects ancient literary traditions. It's a very fascinating episode. I hope that you will join us for it. It's not meant to be listened to, although I will upload the audio so that if you don't have access to YouTube, you can listen to it. But I recommend watching it uh, I recommend downloading it you know, to your audio, but I recommend watching it because there's a presentation, a video presentation that goes along with it. So that is in the form of an interview between me and Mike Madsen. I hope you'll look for that this week. It's a very special episode. And it just so happens that he spends a lot of time on one of our chapters. This is one of the reasons why, even though this is chapter 36 of Alma, is one of the more brilliant chapters in the Book of Mormon, it's a reason why I'm not going to cover it as completely as I normally would, is because... 
we have more material coming out this week to talk about that chapter specifically, and then in a more general way about all chiasmus in the Book of Mormon and about parallelism in general. So I hope you'll join us for that special episode. I'm not sure exactly what it'll come out. We're still editing the video, but it should be very soon. So look for that special episode number nine chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. So to get to Alma chapter 36 through 38, I mentioned a little bit about Alma chapter 36, and I'm going to cover it last. But briefly, Alma chapters 36 and 7 are the letter of Alma to his son Helaman. And Alma isn't leaving at this time. You may remember that at the end of Alma's life, he doesn't die. He just departs. Nobody knows what happens to him. And in the Book of Mormon, it says that we must needs believe that he was buried by the hand of the Lord, as was Moses. And that also is an interesting little tidbit, because that's something we don't get from the Bible. We learn from the Bible that Moses died. But from the Book of Mormon, we learn that Moses was, quote-unquote, buried by the hand of the Lord, which means that he was translated. Mormon doctrine would teach that Moses was translated also, because he still had a physical body in order to restore to Jesus Christ the keys of his dispensation on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's an interesting tidbit. In any case, Alma will later on depart out of the land of Zarahemla, but that time has not yet arrived. He, Nevertheless, he is preparing for that time. So during these letters, uh, one to his son Helaman and one to his son Shiblon, he is preparing them for when he's not going to be around anymore. And Alma is certainly one of the towering figures of the Book of Mormon, Alma the Younger. He took over from his father, uh, Alma the Elder, who established the first church in the land of Zarahemla. But he, he is the one who really took this church from just a small fledgling enterprise into the universal church and also gave the powerful writings that Mormon would later turn into some of our most beloved doctrine. And not only were his teachings, was his doctrine some of the most powerful in the Book of Mormon, but also his personal story is, depending on your viewpoint, one of certainly one of the, if not the most dramatic story in the Book of Mormon. He went from the lowest of sinners to one of the most respected of pro- and holiest of prophets. And such a towering figure like this, uh, the qu- we might ask ourselves ourselves the question, if he were to provide us a capstone of all of his doctrine, of all of his teaching, what would that look like? And without a doubt, the answer to that question is Alma chapter 36. So Alma chapter 36 is one of the most beautiful writings that you'll find anywhere in scripture. It rivals the work of Isaiah for sure, because Isaiah is almost exclusively poetry. If you understand Hebrew poetry, poetic tradition, you will know that Isaiah, and in fact, you can buy many Bibles that sh- that display this uh, in forms of indentation and even italics. Uh, Isaiah is almost exclusively poetry, and if you were to render the Book of Mormon in that same way, you would render it poetically. You would show it in italics. You would have it indented, and the indentation would actually take a strange form if you were to indent it according to uh, its its parts in Hebrew tradition, because there would be seventeen indentations, or uh, at least that's the number I remember from from our special episode uh, from Mike's presentation. So, um, anyway, that is to just to give you a little hint of its lyrical genius, and then its spiritual genius is on a par with that as well. So we'll get to that chapter at the end. Uh, so we're going to skip to Alma chapter 37. And this is Alma telling Helaman, look, I'm going to give you all of the things that have been entrusted to me. Now, if you remember, 
the these relics among these relics are first of all the plates the not only the brass plates that they brought out of i'm sorry not only the plates of nephi upon which the entire book of mormon is written but the small plates of nephi on which he wrote a more particular record of his spiritual teachings uh, what we know today as the books of first nephi through omni not only those two groups of plates the the large plates of nephi were plates that could be added to uh, as they were filled up, they could be. There were several volumes, but the smaller plates of Nephi seem to have had a single volume only, because the final writer said these plates are full. But also, these relics included the brass plates that the that Lehi and his sons brought out of Jerusalem, and they include the sword of Laban that Nephi used to obtain the brass plates. They include the Leahona that marvelous compass-like device that guided them in the wilderness. And by this point in the Book of Mormon, we know that the, these relics also contain interpreters. Now, we don't know exactly the origin of these interpreters, whether the Nephites encountered them when they moved to the land of Zarahemla and they were sort of leftover artifacts from the time of the Jaredites, or whether God sent them with the interpreters out of Jerusalem, or whether he instructed them in how to prepare them or create them on their own. Uh, that's a question that isn't specifically answered in the Book of Mormon, but we, we do have a record of Joseph Smith receiving a revelation that the Urim and Thummim that he found with the golden plates were those that belonged to the Jaredites. So there's a good reason to believe that those were had among the Nephites as well. So those are the things that Alma is turning over to his son. Something interesting that you may not realize because we only learn it later on in the Book of Mormon, but in Alma chapter 50, verse 38, we learn that Alma first tried to give all of these relics to turn over the records that he had stewardship over to Nephiha, who was the chief judge. And we're going to learn something. It's, it's an interesting fact that I only am recently starting to appreciate but even though the Nephites went to a more democratic system of government, they still maintained what was what could be uh, properly termed a dynasty. So first, the first chief judge was Alma, but then he relegated the post to Nephiha in order to be solely a prophet. Nephiha was chief judge throughout his life. Then he gave this, or he gave, he either gave or the people voted in, his son, Pahoran, and then he had two sons who served as chief judges, and at that point, one of Alma's descendants, Helaman, became the chief judge. And so these two families were actually, they held the highest position in government until the time when the Gadianton robbers took over prior to the coming of Christ. And I never quite realized that. I thought there were a bunch of different people elected, but they all were descended from these two families. And they were very holy families. So uh, Alma obviously believed that, that Nephi Ha was a holy enough man that he could give these records over to him. And we have evidence in the uh, 50th chapter again of Alma that Nephi Ha refused that honor. And so only then did Alma give these records to his son Helaman. So these are the, and, and I'm going to tell you what conclusions I draw from that in just a little bit, actually at the end of chapter 38. But first of all, th this chapter you might think of it as the, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass chapter. Because this is where Alma says to Helaman that particular quote that is quite famous in the Book of Mormon. And the admonition he gives them, gives to, I'm sorry, to Helaman is, is to maintain, or what he calls, 
keep these records. And if they are kept, then they must needs remain bright. And just like every other thing, every other set of plates that contains holy writ, if they're kept, they will remain bright. And I always assumed reading this in the past that that meant that God, because they're scripture, because they hold scriptures, that God would not allow the metal on which the scriptures are engraved to tarnish. And therefore, he would miraculously preserve any scriptural plates from the natural decay and processes of oxidation that would normally uh, come upon these metals. And so that would allow the plates to be read more easily and perhaps translated or transferred more easily, transcribed, copied more easily. So I always thought this was a description of a miraculous process. And Alma says, and so, you know, you might think this is foolishness in me that I would talk about something that is so simple and yet by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. This time, as I'm reading through this, it, it, it dawned on me that he might be talking about something as simple as, as we read in verse 5, if they are kept, they must retain their brightness. So it, it might be that what he's saying, he's describing the process that Helaman, he's giving instructions to Helaman. He's describing the process that he should go through in order to keep take care of them. Or in other words, he's saying, here's what the word keep means. In the case of things that have holy writ on them, they are to maintain their brightness. They are to be maintained in such a way that they don't get tarnished, that they maintain their brightness. And therefore, that's part of the caretaking of these is that every so often you're going to, um, you know, we, we, may, we might guess that they had a way of removing tarnish from these metals. And there are certain metals that tarnish less frequently or less easily than others. That may be the, one of the reasons why there was a gold alloy used to make the plates. And then the admonition that he gives Helaman in verse 6 of chapter 37 makes a lot more sense. You may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And if he were saying, in fact, that, look, Helaman, I need you to take care of these records, and part of taking care of them is for you to be on constant watch that they don't get tarnished. You have to watch over them and keep them like new. And you might suppose that this is foolishness in me, but look, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. It might be that by something as simple as keeping these records from getting from oxidation, from normal wear and tear, from keeping them nice, it might be that many people are brought to the knowledge of the truth. Now that seems to me like really valuable advice. He might be saying that I have, you know, I have the spirit whispering within me that it is going to be relevant at some point that these records have been kept from tarnishing. Now, I don't know that that's the case, but it just seems like it's more useful to for Helaman to hear about uh, a job that he has to do through his own choices rather than just have described to him a job that God will do, whether he likes it or not, miraculously. And so that's kind of what I believe now. That's my new opinion is that Alma is actually describing a, a job that is part of the responsibility, the stewardship of taking over these sacred records. And so that gives new light to the whole chapter, which is, uh, look, small and simple things are these little tasks that you do repetitively that seem so easy, and yet they, they bring great things to pass. If you were to skip down to the end of the chapter in verse 48, Alma says, O oh my son, do not let us be slothful, because of the easiness of the way, which goes in line very much with this idea that 
it is so easy to maintain these records clean, to keep them clean. Once a year, you go in and, and you clean them, or once every five years, or however often you have to do it. But do not let us be slothful because it's easy. Don't forget that by small and simple things, you are going to one day reap great rewards if you're willing to remain diligent to those small and simple things. So keeping that in mind, that's the, it, whether it's true or not, that's the opinion that I'm going to use as I, as I study the rest of this chapter. And that's fitting because this is really what the chapter is about. Alma says, in verse 15, Alma says to Helaman, Behold, I tell you by the spirit of prophecy that if you transgress the commandments of God, and what he means by that is these commandments that I've given you about how you've got to keep these sacred things safe, If you transgress the commandments of God, behold, these things which are sacred shall be taken away from you by the power of God, and ye shall be delivered up unto Satan, that he may sift you as chaff before the wind. But if you keep the commandments of God and do with these things which are sacred according to that which the Lord doth command you, behold, no power of earth or hell can take them from you. For God is powerful to the fulfilling of all his words. And those two verses are powerful powerful for us as well. You and I don't have entrusted to us uh, the stewardship over these ancient scriptural and holy relics that are going to prove the means of salvation of many souls. Uh, That is not something that at least I don't personally have that entrusted to me. Nevertheless, I'm going to read these words again. If you transgress the commandments of God, behold, these things which are sacred shall be taken away from you. We all have things that are sacred that have been entrusted to us. Uh, Our good name, the gospel, the scriptures, the words of the prophet, the Holy Spirit, the sacrament, the ordinances and ordinations of the gospel, the priesthood. All these things have been entrusted to us. And if we transgress the commandments of God, uh, I think it's worth reading these verses and applying them to ourselves. These things which are sacred shall be taken away from you by the power of God. But if you keep the commandments... And do with these things that are sacred according to that which the Lord doth command you. Behold, no power of earth or hell can take them from you. What a powerful promise that is. It's not just a promise from Alma to Helaman, but it's a promise to all of us. I'm going to read the verse that immediately precedes those two. Um, And I just because I think it's interesting, this is verse 14 in Alma 37. And now remember, my son, that God has entrusted you which, with these things which are sacred, which he has kept sacred, and also which he will keep and preserve for a wise purpose in him, that he may show forth his power unto future generations. Now, this also applies to us, because everything that we keep sacred gets passed on in a, in a very predictable way, and a very evident way when you look backwards. It gets passed on to future generations. If you were to look back over the generations that preceded you, it may be that they passed you a legacy of faith. And if they haven't, if you were the one to make the decision to convert to the gospel, then if you were to take this advice, remember that God has entrusted you with these things which are sacred for a wise purpose in him. If you were to take that advice, then your and your descendants, your heirs, would have something very valuable to look back and praise you for. You would basically be saving them from the necessity of discovering and choosing the gospel on their own against the very high likelihood that they may never have that opportunity. So this is a wonderful verse, verse 14, that that God is going to show forth his power 
unto future generations. If we will keep and preserve these things, then he will, sh- he will use them to show forth his power unto future generations. I know this is true in my own life. I know that I see the power of God through the choices that were made by people that came before me. And that's especially important as we celebrate, at least here in Utah, we celebrate Pioneer Day. And Pioneer Day is, I think, on a conceptual basis, it's, it's meaningful for the whole church, not just for the, the Mormon pioneers who came across the plains and who established the city of Salt Lake in the Rocky Mountains, but you can consider every person, who a pioneer, who is willing to make a sacrifice or take a journey for the gospel. And there are pioneers all over this earth. There are pioneers in that sense in every corner of the globe where the gospel lives, because I would say it is pretty rare that somebody was able to convert to the gospel, change their life, without making some form of sacrifice. Uh, I know those people do exist. They're already living the gospel, and when it comes along, they receive it with sheer gratitude, and they don't have any changes to make. But I think, more commonly, people learn of the gospel, the Spirit pricks their hearts, and then they, and then it tells them, this is, these are the ways in which the Lord would have you change. Or these are the things that you will have to give up. These are the people who will come after you because you have accepted the gospel and, and publicly. So uh, as we think about this verse and as we remember that God gave a charge to the ancient prophets, uh, let's also remember that God gave a charge to modern people as well to keep these things that are sacred and preserve them, and he will show forth his power through them to future generations, which is us, and which will be our children, our grandchildren. He will show forth if we will keep these things sacred, meaning the Book of Mormon, the words of the prophet, the gospel, the priesthood, the sacrament. If we will keep these things sacred, he will show forth his power through these small and simple things to future generations. Now, a lot of chapter 37 is taken up with Alma telling Helaman not to reveal the details from the 24 plates, the details of the transgressions of the Jaredites. Now, we can assume that the Jaredites have a lot of detail about their secret combinations, about their conspiracies, about the ways in which the evil people managed to bring their entire society into ruin and destruction. And I could go into them right now, but there's no need because, first of all, they're not translated directly into the Book of Mormon, at least not the part that we have. And secondly, the Nephites are destroyed by those same types of conspiracies, and therefore we we will have a more detailed description later on. Mormon himself relates uh, the details, and we can we can assume that they sort of parallel what happened to the Jaredites. But in any case, uh, Alma spends a lot of time on that. We don't need to spend any more than we have. But there's what uh, they used to call a scripture mastery verse here at the end. Remember, my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. That's verse 35. And I was paraphrasing. I hope I got it right. But uh, learn wisdom in thy youth. And he's saying wisdom equals keeping the commandments of God. It's another evidence after this wonderful chapter of chapter 36, which we'll go into, It's another evidence of the Hebraic tradition of Alma, that Alma was raised with the tradition of Hebraisms, the the ideas from the Hebrew language. Because the word wisdom in Hebrew actually means taking what you know and applying it to the obedience of God. So not just gaining knowledge or learning, but taking that learning and giving it a bedrock foundation of the values that God would have you give it. Nephi expressed this idea explicitly in 1 Nephi chapter 28 and in other places, but 
Here in Alma chapter 37, we have it sort of buried, that learn, learn wisdom in thy youth, and here's parallelism. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. He's actually saying this, the same thing twice in a row using different words. That's parallelism. And the fact that wisdom and keeping the commandments of God are interchangeable in that parallelism shows us not only uh, through the parallelism, but through the definition of the word wisdom, the Hebraic tradition of Alma. It's really interesting what's happening here. Also it shows, now uh, in chapter 38, we'll, we'll realize that Alma says, don't boast, don't, don't be lifted up in pride because of your wisdom. He says this to his son Shiblon, but here in chapter 37, he says, learn wisdom. And so to me, this is very interesting because we don't know much about Shiblon. We do know that among the missionaries that went to the Zoramites, he was the only one who didn't have a history of transgression. And we know that Helaman was left behind from that mission. We, there's not a whole lot that we can assume, but we can, we can make sort of guesses and we can ask questions and we can wonder about it. So one of the things that I wonder is, is Alma telling Helaman that he needs to learn wisdom because he's concerned that he won't learn wisdom or because he knows that he doesn't yet have wisdom and he wants him to learn it. Uh, later on, Helaman would take Alma's place as the prophet and not Shiblon. Nevertheless, both of these sons of Alma would at one time or another be the curators, the stewards over these sacred things. First Helaman, but then Helaman died. And in between the time when Helaman's son Helaman and Helaman, the son of Alma, curated the plates, uh, Shiblon was their caretaker. And he, he, took, he received them from his brother and then passed them to his nephew, uh, both named Helaman. So that's interesting because both of these sons of Alma were holy enough, were responsible enough, were obedient enough to receive these sacred things. So the question is, why did Alma choose Helaman and not Shiblon? And could he have chosen Shiblon? And so the question that comes up for me is, was Shiblon chosen to go to the mission, on the mission to the Zoramites because he was more faithful than Helaman? Was Helaman left behind because Alma knew he could take a certain amount of responsibility? He could be left in charge of the church of people who were obedient, but he didn't know if he could take the challenge of being among people who were disobedient. Now, obviously, Alma didn't. He also took Coriantin with him, and as we'll learn next time, uh, Coriantin had a problem with obedience on his mission. So there are a number of problems with this idea. It's not a theory, it's just a question. So I'm posing this question. And the reason that I pose it is because he, a couple of reasons. First of all, because of what I've already expressed, he tells Helaman to learn wisdom and he tells Shiblon, don't be prideful because of your existing wisdom. And then secondly, he writes Helaman a longer letter. The longest letter of the three is written to Coriantin, the disobedient son, or the one-time disobedient son. It ends, it ends up, that it's a happy ending. Corianton ends up repenting for the rest of his life, and he's faithful. He goes on more missions. He's, uh, he's always can, can be counted on to lead people to Christ after he receives this letter, or perhaps after uh, being earlier corrected by Alma. Nevertheless, his letter was the longest, and it's because Alma was trying to correct him. The letter of Alma to Helaman is the second longest, and the, the powerful testimony of Christ and his power to change someone is not given to Shiblon, it's given to Helaman. And that might mean, uh, again, I don't know this and I don't even necessarily believe it, but I, I wonder about it. It might mean that Alma didn't think Shiblon needed 
that message because he knew that Christ had already transformed his heart, but maybe he was worried about Helaman knowing that Christ could transform his heart. And therefore he gave him, he spent the time, it would have taken so much time and work to write Alma chapter 36, as you'll see. And so he took the time to write this letter for his son Helaman, knowing that he needed that message, knowing that he needed to change. It's an interesting idea, but Helaman became the prophet after Alma, so it can't have been that he was, well, I shouldn't say can't, because look at Alma the Younger, he, he changed quite a bit. But it doesn't seem likely that he would have been totally disobedient, but it also doesn't seem that he already had all of his ducks in a row, or else uh, he may not have needed such a long letter. So those are some of the reasons why I wonder about this. And I and then that also uh, begs the question in the reverse direction. Well, then, if that's the case, why did Alma choose Helaman rather than Shiblon to receive the sacred things? The answer to that is I simply don't know. It's just something to think about. And that sort of brings us to the end of the chapter. So at the end of the chapter, Alma talks about the Liahona, and he says Liahona is one of these small things, but he describes it as something, the work on it is so curious that nobody could create it. It had to have been created by the power of God. But what it did for the people, for the family of Lehi in the wilderness was, it forced them to have their minds, their hearts in the right place. And if they would just pay heed to the words in the Liahona, then it would guide them through the wilderness. And this is what prompts him Uh, to get into that verse to give the advice that we mentioned earlier, which is, Oh, my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. And this is what he's likening, likening it unto, is it's as easy for us to follow the Spirit as it is to, on, on our spiritual journey through life, as it is for someone on a journey through the wilderness to look at a compass. And that's, uh, that's the implement that the Lehona most closely resembles, at least not necessarily in its appearance, but at least in terms of its utility. It resembles a compass because it points the direction where you should go in the wilderness. So if you think about a journey that you might go on, it's as easy to pay attention to the Holy Ghost in our lives as it is to look at a compass while you're walking through the wilderness. And why would you ignore it? it? It tells you exactly where to go. Otherwise, you won't know that very important piece of information. It's quite a powerful analogy, and it's a simple one. So it's right in line with Alma's teachings, which is the simple things are the ones that become important. That's Alma chapter 37. Alma chapter 38 is a short chapter. It's the entirety of Alma's letter to his son Shiblon, and it's only one chapter and it's a short one. Uh, One of the things we learn about Shiblon is that he not only was locked up in jail, so he suffered bondage, but he also suffered stoning. Uh, Alma, you remember, had his sort of Abrahamic test when he was among the people of Ammonihah, and there's no record there that he was stoned himself, but he watched those whom he had converted be burned to death, and he had to remain faithful through this terrible, terrible test, and then he was beaten, imprisoned, and tortured, starved for months, and we learn now that Shiblon has suffered something similar. So, this is the, these are the tender words of a father to a son who has They've both been through the fire, uh, figuratively speaking. They've both been through the refiner's fire. They've both been tested to their utmost, and God has found them worthy. He's saying, son, I know you were faithful. You remained not only obedient but optimistic when you were imprisoned and when you were stoned for the word, and that is the most faithful kind of missionary possible. So 
this is this is the letter of a of a father who's very confident about his son's obedience. The advice that he gives him is you are so obedient and so wise that you run the risk of being prideful and you have great strength. So you've been given everything. So the way that Satan is going to get you is he's going to lead you to pride. And I want I want you to escape that. So see that you are in verse 11, see that you are not lifted up to pride. He gives him a minor sort of an abbreviated version of Alma chapter 36. So in verses five through nine, he describes that if you trust, so he starts out the same way chapter 36 starts out. He says, if you trust in God and if you're obedient, then you'll be delivered out of your trials and your tribulations. If you obey the commandments, you will prosper in the land. And if you don't, you'll be cut off from his presence. This is the Lehite covenant. And so then he tells him also, that I was, I was going around with the sons of Mosiah to destroy the church. God in his mercy sent an angel to put me back on the right path. And I was three days and three nights suffering. And then I cried out to Christ for mercy. And then I received a remission of my sins. And anybody who will do that will also receive the same thing. Christ is the light of the world. He is the word of truth and righteousness, as, as Alma writes in verse 9. If you were to read those four verses, you would get all of the main ideas from Alma chapter 36, but you get it without the elegance and the poetry, and that's the important difference. One of the reasons for these ancient prophets and writers, poets, writing in parallelism and chiasm as they did is because it was more memorable. In an oral tradition, all you have is whatever your hearers, all all you can teach is whatever they take away whatever they remember from your preaching. And so even though this was a letter to his son Helaman, he wanted him to remember it. And so he knew that when I'm talking to someone, I use repetition and I use chiasm in order to make sure that they retain what they've learned. And so this most important of all messages, I am going to couch in the most elegant and the most intricate of parallelism and chiasm so that I have the greatest chance of him remembering as much of it as possible because it's so important. And and uh, in here in his letter to Shiblon, he doesn't spend as much time, he doesn't put as much work into making sure that Shiblon will remember it because he already knows Shiblon has been through the refiner's fire. Shiblon has passed his Abrahamic test like I have, like I, Alma, have. And so I don't need to worry as much. I just need to worry that he'll be prideful. He even warns him, don't pray like those Zoramites prayed. You remember the Ramiumptum prayer. Don't pray with gratitude that you're better than anyone, but always, always acknowledge your unworthiness before God and then ask him to forgive it. So that's the comparison and contrast between what might be called Alma's two righteous sons. And that takes us directly into Alma chapter 36. And this is where we'll end. So the main ideas, as I said, are that God will preserve you if you're obedient and that I myself was disobedient and I had a chance to learn all of these things. I was racked with torment when an angel appeared to me and I spent three days and nights in this hell And it was only when I remembered Jesus Christ and called upon his name and invoked the atonement that he was able to save me. And when he did, then I awoke to an awareness of how much God could do for me and and the fact that he could wash away my sins. And I, I felt such great joy. It was strong enough to override all of the pain that I had felt before that point. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Alma chapter 36, but again, I'm not going to go into as much detail as I normally would. 
on such an important chapter, uh, except that we will cover it this week. And I can't stress strongly enough, you've got to watch this special episode that we've got coming out because it is powerful. But the point of Alma chapter 36 is to teach the transformative power of Jesus Christ. So one of the key, and in case you, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis in case you don't get an opportunity to watch that uh, special episode. But one of the key reasons to, for a poet, for a prophet, for a writer to use chiasm, which is simply parallelism, but in reverse order. So if you have a parallelism with only two elements, then that's just repetition. But once you get into three or more elements, it's possible for you to repeat something in the same order, or it's possible for you to repeat it in reverse order. And one of the and that, and that's what chiasm is is parallelism but repeated in reverse order. And the reason it's called chiasm is because if you were to indent the things that are repeated and then unindent them gradually as you as you reverse the order, then the left side of the words would resemble part of a letter chi. A Greek letter chi is the letter X. This is obviously a modern name. It's not an ancient Hebrew name for this. They just thought of it as writing, teaching, right? They didn't have a name for it. But we call it chiasm. One of the reasons for it is because in the center, the middle point, the middle concept around which the whole parallelism rotates is generally the main idea. So in modern writing, in what's called order of importance, the most important thing is mentioned last. The second most, if you, let's say you had three things and you wanted to know how should I mention them so that they'll be remembered. You would mention the most important thing last. You would mention the second most important thing first. And the least important thing you would put in the middle. And that's because people kind of forget the middle. They remember the end most of all because it's what they carry away with them. And they remember the beginning a little bit as well because the they didn't have a bunch to to keep in mind at the beginning of the talk or at the beginning of the message. That's modern order of importance, but chiastic order of importance is to put the most important thing in the middle. Now, this would have been very foreign to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith would have not have known to do this, let alone the, the utter complexity, the intricate complexity of this chapter. It would have been impossible for anyone living in the early 18th century to write this chapter, specifically because chiasm as a literary form had not even been discovered yet. We talk about that in the uh, special episode as well. The central idea in this chapter is that is that Alma, when he is at the depths of his despair, fixes upon the idea of Christ. He'd heard his father talk about Christ, and then he calls out to Christ. He says, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me who am in the, in the gall of bitterness and despair. And at, at the moment that he makes this request, he can feel his pains no more. Now, part of chiasm is to enhance the repetition so that after the central point has been made, then the second half of all these repetitions that are made in reverse order, they are made in a more emphasized way in some way. This isn't always the case, but it's often the case. So in this particular instance, we see the difference between Alma talks about the things that happened to him, and then this transformative episode right in the center when he calls out to Jesus Christ or the idea of Christ, and then he restates the things that happened to him in a new way. And the, the change that occurs in the way he expresses what happened to him in the second half of the chapter 
it is it is very informative about the nature of Jesus Christ. And I'll just give you a couple of quick ideas about that. So in the first half, he talks about the fact that we have to remember all the things that our ancestors have been through, that they have been through bondage and God led them out of bondage. At the end of the chapter, he says, God brought me out of bondage. So one of the transformations is that Christ has taken this general experience of the people of God and he has made it personal to Alma that I, Alma, have experienced the fact that God can bring me out of bondage. He describes his pain, his fear, his, his pain uh, of the pains of a damned soul, the fear at being in the presence of God, his paralysis, he's unable to move his limbs. And these are all transformed into joy, into longing to be in the presence of God, receiving strength to his body and strength to work and proclaim the word. The concepts that Alma introduces in a context of wickedness in the first part of the chapter are referenced with an a context of repentance in the second part of the chapter. So Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ transforms him, he transforms not only uh, Alma's personal experience, but he transforms the meaning of everything in his life from what the uh, what his ancestors have been through to what his where his own life is heading. And all of the decisions he makes all hinge around this moment in time. And everything thereafter is made totally different and is utterly changed by the experience he had with his Savior. So that is the message of this chapter, and I think it's important that we, uh, we revisit one of his messages, which is, I, my son Helaman, I would that you should do as I have done in remembering the captivity of our fathers, for they were in bondage, and none could deliver them, except it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he surely did deliver them in their afflictions. Now again, this is the week of Pioneer Day, and we should follow this admonition of Alma and remember our fathers, the captivity of our fathers, which means our mothers and our fathers, those who came before us, because nobody could deliver them except God, and he did deliver them. And that is true in a modern world, in a modern sense, as well as in an ancient sense. God delivered his people in spite of all of their afflictions and in spite of him doing it in a way that they did not expect and it taking longer than they would have hoped, he did deliver them. And so we should do what Alma has done and remember the captivity of our fathers. We should also learn the, the powerful lesson that he was trying to teach his son Helaman, which is that the moment in which we reach out to Christ will be a transformative moment for us. Christ has power to change everything, not only our guilt into forgiveness, but he has power to change all of our perceptions, all of our experiences from wickedness into repentance, from a general understanding of God's goodness into a personal understanding of Christ as our individual Savior. And all of these things can happen if we will reach out and, as Alma taught Shiblon, acknowledge our own unworthiness, never seek to hide it or excuse it, but acknowledge it before God and ask if he will forgive us. And that's when we will experience the transformative power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I say that in his holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.